Hello, everyone. This is Speaking Up with Andrew Pledger. I am a religion recovery coach who helps people with life after religion. And this podcast allows people to share their stories of abuse and religious trauma in various religions and cults. Some guests come on the show to discuss specific topics to educate and bring awareness. Discussions will range from purity culture, mental health, religious trauma, Christian culture, deconstruction, spirituality, and much more. Now, let's get into this episode of Speaking Up with Andrew Pledger. I am here today with Luke Wilson, but he is now Dr. Wilson because he just finished his PhD recently, and his title is Justice, Equity, and Transformation Transformation Postdoctoral Fellow at University of Calgary. And he attended Liberty University and was unfortunately a part of their gay conversion therapy there. And he is now an LGBTQ plus advocate, and his work has been featured in Queerity, the Advocate, and LGBTQ plus Nation and Religion Dispatches. And he is here today to come on the show to tell his story and to talk about the work that he is doing today. Thank you so much, Luke, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I, of course, I've been really looking forward to this, and I'm so, so glad I found you through my gay church days, because once I once I saw that, I was like, yes, I'm like, that's a perfect guest. <laughs> and just all the work and things that you've done is just incredible. Um, and we'll definitely get into that, but I think uh, it's important to dig into people's stories. So what was your childhood like regarding religion, and how did that lead you to liberty, and how did that affect you? So I was not really raised in a religious home in a lot of senses. My mom, uh, she was, I guess, haunted by her Baptist demons. And my dad just wasn't uh, really all that concerned with religion. And so growing up, we went to church on and off when I was little. But like most good Canadian families, we started going to the cottage on the weekend instead Mm. because we didn't. (laughs) And the church was therefore sort of uh, not an option. I guess we could have gone to the church at the cottage, but uh, mm-hmm. we rarely did that. And so I, from a, about up until about grade two, was involved in church, you know, on and off. But by grade two, grade three, we really just stopped going. Uh, mm-hmm. And and again, we just kind of lived our lives uh, without church. But uh, going into high school, I became super interested in creation versus evolution <laughs> and <laughs> thought that that was, you know, an important conversation to have. And so I, my brother got me into it. He was like, you should watch these like DVDs with me, Luke, about creation versus evolution. And I was like, that sounds horribly boring. Like, no, thank you. <laughs> but uh, I did in fact, uh, start watching these DVDs with my brother Quinn. And then I became fascinated and I thought to myself, if in fact, I believe there's a creator, Mm. I need to then know who this creator is. And so I went to the church that I had attended when we were little, uh, Forward Baptist Church here in Toronto. And I kind of got hooked. I I didn't stop uh, going to church for, Mm. you know, really all of high school. And then I eventually went to Liberty. But I, I had sort of this like spiritual I, I, I would, I wouldn't even call it an awakening. I would just say yeah. I had like a spiritual moment. Um, and because I don't want to give too much, you know, I don't want to lend too much credence to Christianity as if like, you know, <sighs> when I found Jesus, it was a spiritual awakening. No, it was more of like a spiritual deception, but that's neither mm. here nor there. That wasn't how I was thinking about it at the time. At the time yeah. I thought you I found God. Did. Yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I thought that I was, you know, on the right path and mm-hmm. God was on God's throne uh, in my life. So uh, yeah, I, I, I started, uh, attending church, started attending youth group. Um, and for four years, uh, throughout high school, I was, uh, the Christian kid in high school. I went to an art school, downtown Toronto, mm-hmm. and I was one of very few Christians in my school. Uh, and, uh, along the way I found out about Liberty and I, uh, decided that I was going to go there after I went down and visited the campus. Uh, and then I went and visited the campus a bunch more times, but 
uh, yeah, I was sort of, uh, my church was one of the feeders to Liberty in some senses. Well, not really. They, they, I was not really the only, per- I was kind of the only person who went there, but we had connections through our denomination, I should say more accurately, uh, to Liberty. And, the, and a lot of people within my mm-hmm. denomination, which was Fellowship Evangelical yeah. Baptist, uh, there were a lot of folks going from that denomination down to Liberty. So I was one of those folks, uh, but I, I was the first person, I think, at least in my knowledge, I was the first person to go to Liberty from my church specifically. Mm. Okay. Interesting. But yeah, I mean, I can understand your experiences with feeling that at least what you call like spiritual deception, because I've definitely like looked back on my own experiences. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like I kind of cringe. I'm like, oh, that was very emotional. I was in a high control environment. You know, I was very dependent on this system. Like it gave me purpose. It gave me certainty. Um, Strucker, it made me feel unique and special. Um, so it provided all these emotional um, highs. And, you know, as human beings, we just naturally you know, because of higher consciousness, we have a lot of questions about the world around us and we really um, want those answers most definitely. And evangelical Christianity and fundamentalist Christianity really uh, provides those answers and just, they really, they just give you a formula to follow. So you don't really don't have to think too much for yourself and you just go with the flow and your life is supposed to turn out great. Um, And I think the issue is that, um, there is an emotional high to that, but I don't think it works for everyone. <laughs> That's something I experienced where I'm like, for a while, yes, it provided some comfort and emotional high, but then it just, it caused so much harm. Um, and, you know, I know you eventually, you know, when you were at Liberty, you were in the gay uh, conversion therapy program. So when did you realize that you had a queer identity and, how like what was the internal conflict like with your own beliefs at least when you first realized that yeah before we even get there the point that you were bringing up the the idea of emotions that for me is so funny right because you have Mm -hmm. evangelicals who will oftentimes tell uh will oftentimes say that that it's the queer community and if you're thinking about queer folks specifically you can can really pick any group to be honest but yeah you're thinking about queer folks specifically how often they'll say that who we are and our identity is based, uh, is rooted in emotion, right? Like that our theology is rooted in emotion, not so much thinking. Mm-hmm. And so it's so funny that so often you have Christians pointing the finger and saying all of your decisions and who, how you identify mm-hmm. and like how you live your life is based on emotions and how you mm-hmm. feel, but not on, you know, the word of God, whatever the hell that is. But like this, this idea that we are the ones who are emotional Mm. Um, is oftentimes that's this sort of this charge leveled against Mm. us when in fact when you think about evangelical christianity and you think about let's just think about like the church service like how there's the the music and how the music draws Mm. on your your heartstrings the lights and the smoke if you're in one of these like contemporary you know services Mm. and how much of evangelicalism and specifically like the worship context is theatrical right like yes. they're on a stage <laughs> we're all in the pews and like the audience and it's so funny mm-hmm. that we're, we're oftentimes said we're told that you know how we live our lives and our and what we do is based on mm-hmm. emotion yeah whereas they're the ones who are apparently the ones who are, are doing what god says and it's it's yeah. like i'm not saying that what i do isn't based on emotion or how i feel or, or that kind of mm-hmm. stuff yeah. but certainly it is for them as well right and i think that yeah it's, that you know, it's this projection mm. that the evangelical church sort of like puts yeah. on the world and says, you're mm-hmm. all emotional. We're not. And it's like, oh my goodness, if anyone's emotional, it's you. Look not to say we're not emotional. We are, but yeah. you are. Like, we are. Right? Um, yeah. So to answer your question though, uh, about uh, me being, knowing when I was queer, I, or I, how, when, how do I say? Uh, I mean, I use I, queer as a broad term, but yeah, how do you identify at least? Oh, I'm now. I mean, I, yeah. queer too. That works for me as well. Yeah, uh, queer gay, all, all, all the same for me uh, mm-hmm. when it comes to myself. Um, but yeah, for for me, like realizing I was queer or gay, uh, I I was like super young. Like I wasn't mm-hmm. I wasn't very old, um, and I knew from a young age that I was different from other guys. Um, and I knew that I had a lot of similarities with a lot of the gals in my, in my class or in my family <laughs> or you know, whatnot. Um, and I very much, uh, 
because of that realization was was yeah was in a lot of ways scared for that to become public knowledge and i did my best to hide it and of course conversion therapy is part of that hiding process for me specifically and for a lot of queers um but yeah i I learned at a young age that i I, I realized at a young age i was queer um i knew it was something i had to hide from my my mom specifically because she used to make a lot of really homophobic comments a lot um and I'm the youngest of five kids and I have three older mm-hmm. brothers and a sister. And I certainly didn't want my brothers knowing though. Looking back now, it's like the writing was on the wall. Like I watched a lot of like, you know, HGTV or, you know, I took cooking lessons. <laughs> like, as a kid, like I was very gay. Um, <laughs> and I went to an art school. Right. Uh, so yeah. Oof, I don't think I was fooling yeah. many people, but mm, yeah. Like I know what you mean. Cause like, I feel like all the gays, we have that moment where we just look back and we're like, (laughs) we just laugh. We're like, duh. Like, for me, like, I look back and, like, remember all the TV that I watched saying, like, oh, like, I really loved Hannah Montana a little too much, maybe. (laughs) Like, What Not to Wear was a great show. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And just, yeah, there are just so many different things. Um, But how did that, did that really bother your religious beliefs was like what were your religious beliefs around sexuality i'm just curious at that time at least yeah i think it, it, not even uh, that it well it, it did bother I, to put it to use your language like it did bother my religious beliefs, but also it informed my religious beliefs i think that in large part like what got me into the church not in full but in part was the fact that i was looking for some sort of cover i was looking for something that would mm-hmm. sort of allow me not to be seen as the queer kid but instead i was the christian kid I, not that i was like mm-hmm. thinking about these things consciously but i knew that in my under or in the yeah. the church's understanding of, of homosexuality that it was mutually exclusive to be queer you could not be queer and christian at the same time mm-hmm. and so because of that with that knowledge i think that part of what informed my decision ultimately to go back to church was that it was going to allow me to remain, at least in my estimation, invisible when it came to mm-hmm. my sexuality. Um, now, once I was in the church, it became very apparent very quickly, you know, that in fact, yes, my belief or my my understanding of, of homosexuality and how the church sees it was very much, you know, in operation at the church I went to. And so I knew that they uh, did not uh, uh, condone homosexuality and that it was something that uh, mm-hmm. if in fact I you know were to be a Christian I couldn't again I could not have both and that was again reinforced multiple ways through multiple conversations yeah. uh, uh, within the church and so I was very oh goodness I wanted so badly so badly to become straight I wanted to you know uh, find attraction to at least you know a woman and that certainly never happened mm, but yeah um into women in general and i wanted to be one like one of the guys uh and it obviously never happened um yeah. but i think that my theology disallowed me from ever entertaining the possibility that i could be a queer person of faith mm-hmm. I'm, I'm no longer a person of faith that, that it's something that i just don't really care about to yeah mm-hmm. now but at the time that was certainly where i was and that was um, yeah. I was so invested in being a, you know, a Jesus follower. Uh, yeah. and I think my sexuality was something that I had to hide and that's something I was super ashamed of. And it was because of what was, you know, uh, said by people within my church. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. Cause, um, to me, it just makes you think of like the different, um, queer people or situations. Cause I know that they're, you know, there are ultra conservative, people who are queer and they have extremely concerted beliefs and then they have that conflict with their sexuality and they don't like it's a struggle and they don't know how to deal with it and um it causes that it causes a lot of cognitive dissonance i think and that's what i experienced at least because i was very homophobic growing up because that's what i was taught and then of course that turned into internalized homophobia later on and so and they have they really they make you choose between either your sexuality or your religious identity. And for some people, they want both. 
but they feel like they can't and it causes so much discomfort you're like oh well if i choose a religion then oh well i'm still i'm still queer no matter what and i'll just repress it i'll be alone the rest of my life and then i'll just fall into depression i won't get to be loved and accepted i won't belong and then for some people like religion or spirituality is so important that um they really yeah they just keep on denying their sexuality if they try to accept their sexuality then it causes so much psychological discomfort because of their religion and i just i think it's so sad in those situations and then really for me like what blew my mind when i deconstructed was learning about like the clobber passages and like the context and the mistranslations <laughs> it was like shit <laughs> and, it, and even though like when I found out about that, it did. It was hard to accept it because you've been indoctrinated with a certain belief for so long that it, it takes time um, to definitely undo that. And so, what what made you go to Liberty University? So, in part, why I went was because they did offer me a scholarship. But like I like to mm -hmm. say now, you know, in order to get a scholarship, you need to actually do scholarship, and the work that yeah. I was doing at Liberty University was in no <laughs> way defined as what many would describe as uh, scholarship or academic work. Yeah. Um, in fact, when I got to grad school, I was so poor. I realized how poorly trained I was. Like I had no idea what I was doing in grad classes. That I remember. Mm -hmm. I remember the looks on my professors' faces when I would say things. They'd be like, "What are you talking about?" And I was like, "Honestly, I don't know because oh, no. I don't know what I'm supposed to say right now." Because again, I didn't really have a a, a proper undergraduate experience. Oh, and so, um, but putting that aside, putting aside the scholarship, a big reason why I went was in fact the conversion therapy program. I knew mm -hmm. Liberty had a conversion therapy program. I believed that I wanted to become straight or I was told I wanted to become straight, uh, mm. you know, uh, by a number of pastors, preachers, whatever friends. Um, and so I decided that I was going to go to Liberty and I was going mm. to uh, become straight some way, some, you know, at some point. My first initial thought, though, I should say when I before I got to Liberty, I was like, I'm going to go to Liberty. And since it's all Christian guys. And if I go and have a little like, you know, date some Christian guys, I can do that for a bit, have my fun. And then just before I leave, I can maybe go to the conversion therapy program mm -hmm. and become straight, find a woman, marry her. It doesn't matter who it is. And of course, within evangelicalism, you know, like it's any woman will do. Right. It's just very yeah. like a personalizing way of looking at women. But I was like, any woman, I'll find a mm -hmm. woman, I'll find a wife marry her. And then I'll go back to Canada and live a life of godly normalcy. And of course that didn't happen. Um, yeah. I, uh, I didn't really have much fun, uh, while there, but that's a diff that's, I guess a story we can talk about. In a yeah. Second. But my, my initial plan was that, or my big, my big idea for going was because I wanted to become straight mm. though. Again, that was going to be some sort of like deferred or delayed goal because first I needed to, you know, date some Christian boys, which, <laughs> didn't really happen all that and at least not in the way that i was expecting so mm, okay gotcha and so how long were you in their conversion therapy program mm, so i was there i was in the program for all four years i was there oh my. Um, i guess the story i was referencing a second ago I, I should tell it um i got to liberty and one of my spiritual life directors at liberty there are different leadership roles like resident advisors at least when i was this is what they were called mm -hmm. resident advisors then under them were their spiritual life directors under them were prayer leaders and under them were like the rest of the us plebeians who weren't you know spiritual enough to be on the leadership yeah. team so i got to my dorm when i was there and it was oh goodness one of the worst experiences of my life that specific dorm just a bunch of mm -hmm. really really um mean mean people right mean, yeah um, which is so funny now looking back, it's like, these are the people who were supposed to be the salt in the earth, salt, salt and light in the earth, but, uh, they were some of the most, uh, mean spirited people I've ever met. Uh, yeah, ever, uh, putting that aside, uh, I had a spiritual life director on the hall and he made, uh, some, he was like, kind of like flirting with me at one point. And I was thinking to myself, like, is this what I think it is? Like, is he, is he, is this like a, a mutual sort of like a expression of desire, but didn't really know. And then one night we had this very bizarre, uh, I, I call it like a romantic encounter, but I don't know if there was much romance. It was just oh, a no. weird moment. Um, and afterwards he's like, we can't, we can't really like talk. Like, I, I don't want to have anything to do with you. And I was like, oh, <gasps> I had this, like my first sort of like 
uh, you know, experience with a guy. And afterwards he wouldn't talk to me. And mm. I was like, so distraught. Um, and I thought to myself, you know, what am I going to do? Like this guy won't talk to me. Who am I going to tell? Well, of course I couldn't tell anyone back home. Cause by and large, mm. did anyone at that point? No, maybe no friends started. I started telling friends when I was there. Um, mm -hmm. but I, that I was queer or what I, I would have said, I, I struggled. I, I would have phrased it as uh, having same sex attraction, but oh, yeah. <laughs> But I think when I, so I couldn't tell anyone back home. I certainly wasn't about to tell the, my new friends at Liberty. Like, you know, that's not a good way to make friends at an yeah. you know, evangelical yeah. university. So I was like, who the heck am I going to talk to about the fact that, you know, this guy and I had this weird experience and now I don't know what, like, I have no one to talk to. Right. So I, I fast tracked my plan. The plan, you know, being that I was going to first have fun with Christian yeah. guys. So I was like, so like, you know, like I just died over this guy. Um, which is so funny looking back, but uh, I was like, I need to go talk to this conversion therapist. So I uh, made contact with him, eventually set up, you know, a meeting with him. And it was, that was the first meeting. The first meeting I had with him, I think was sometime in, was it like September, October mm. of my first year? And then I went all four years and met with uh, this man. His name is Pastor Dane Emmerich. Uh, he's now retired, but uh, he was the, he was my conversion therapist. Mm, and so could you explain what their program was like? Yeah, so they have Liberty has had different conversion therapy programs throughout its history. Um, some of these convert most of the conversion therapy programs are related to Dane. So Dane was he had both a one on one therapy uh, con uh, sort of uh, approach, but he also had uh, group meetings. And so the groups, the group when I was there was called, uh, it was formerly known as Masquerade, the group. And mm. then it became known as Band of Brothers, which is just like so <laughs> homoerotic and wild. Uh, <laughs> back. And then it was then changed to the name of Armor Bearers. And so mm. I was part of Band of Brothers, but I only went to like one meeting and then I stopped going because it was incredibly bizarre even for me at the time i was like mm, i don't fit in yeah. here like i don't <laughs> these guys these are not my 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 folks um and so uh the conversion therapy and they've had other like there are other people on campus who have been responsible for providing quote-unquote conversion therapy uh and there are people off campus as well so but when i was there specifically uh the conversion therapy program because again I, I went to the one-on-one -on -one meetings throughout all four mm -hmm. years i only went to the group meeting uh once uh the the time with Dane was in the beginning, we spent a lot of time talking about my relationship with my parents and also with my siblings. And so mm. it was like very pseudo Freudian in its approach. Yeah. And it was really hard uh, sort of narrowing in or, or focusing on the fact that I was, I have an overbearing mother. Like my mom is just like, yeah. Cheryl, she's a, she's a wild ride, but the part of the story that didn't fit the narrative of conversion therapy was that I, I was supposed to, according to conversion therapy, have an absentee or emotionally distant father. And I don't like my dad mm -hmm. was phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and so what conversion therapy espouses is that you have this, you know, this bad dad, but then you also mm. have this overbearing mom. And I had half of the story and they're like, okay, let's go with that narrative. So where they yeah. will have the story. And I, uh, from there, they, you know, that was sort of the foundation, right? This understanding of the family as the foundational, you know, uh, unit or institution in, in, in queer folks' lives or in anyone's life, really. Yeah. Um, and so from there, uh, every week I would go after we had these sort of these initial meetings, uh, we read a lot of like, he would read scripture to me. He would always pray for me. I never prayed for myself, which I think is mm. quite telling that he was the one interceding on yeah. my behalf, but me ever doing it for myself. Um, and we had this workbook. My, my workbook was Alan Medinger's growth into manhood, resuming the journey. Mm. <laughs> was the name of the book. Huh. And this book, you know, it, it told you all sorts of things about how to become straight and like how to like reorient how yeah. you act, which would then reorient your sexuality. Um, but first it would reorient mm. your gender identity and expression, which would ultimately result in a change of, 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 of sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was a lot of telling me what to do, how to act, and also really just emphasizing so much of how I am as a 
queer person, though, again, at the time they would have, he would have mm-hmm. described it as me being a person struggling with same sex attraction, you know, how being queer is, is gross, how it's sinful, how it's mm-hmm. you know, something to be ashamed of. And, you know, when you have that reinforced over and over and over, you of course believe it. Right. And mm-hmm. it wasn't even like, I, I didn't believe it before. Of course I believed it before. That's the shame is what brought me to mm-hmm. therapy. Right. Like that's, that was the, 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 the magnet that brought me to actually meet with Dane on a daily or on a weekly basis. Um, and so it's a lot of just concentrating and reinforcing a lot of cultural and religious homophobia. Um, it's a weird prescribed program of how to mm-hmm. act and how not to act and how to talk and how not to talk mm-hmm. and what to do and what not to do and uh, what to think and what not to think. And so, you know, sometimes people will say, well, like, oh, it doesn't sound like it was ultimately that bad. And it's like, in some senses, you know, like where this guy, he's offering you a space to talk about being queer and no other space within the church will allow this. Uh, you know, you, you, at first blush, you'd think, oh, that, that doesn't sound horrible. But mm-hmm. when you think about what messages are being reinforced yeah. over and over, you realize how death dealing this is. And for me, it wasn't death dealing to the point of actual yeah. you know, death. However, there are so many people who take their lives because of this yeah. form of therapy and it's not therapy mm-hmm. at all. It's a misnomer. Um, you were able to, and I think if you, if you look at how this, this practice um, affects people psychologically, you realize mm. really, really quickly that this is, very death dealing. And it's something that obviously uh, shouldn't be happening anywhere. Uh, mm, yeah, especially yeah. not in a place that we're, you know, like the church where, where, you know, a lot of Christians would say the church is uh, a place of life or is, is, mm, a, is a life giving yeah. institution. And of course, what we see is that conversion therapy is not, and also a lot of church practices are not either, but putting that aside, <laughs> neither here nor there. Yes. And so, you said you did it all four years. So when you graduated, what was your opinion of the conversion therapy program? What did you think of it? And what effects did you see it had on your life? Well, I didn't ever think about it when I was there as conversion therapy. That was something a friend of mine in grad school was like, wait, you mm-hmm. went through conversion therapy? And I was like, well, I guess that is what it was, wasn't it? Um, I always just saw it as I went and st- was talked with Pastor Dane, right? Mm-hmm. I always just would go and Interesting. Uh, a lot of people call it like biblical counseling or pastoral counseling yeah. or whatever. And of course, these are all forms of conversion therapy, whether or not they're called conversion therapy, it still yeah. is. Mm-hmm. Um, any attempt to change one's gender identity or sexual orientation yeah. uh, is in fact conversion therapy. Um, so I, at the time, again, I, I, I was down, I, I believed that it was going to change me. I thought it was, it was something that was actually possible to, to change my orientation. Um, but when I got to grad school, that's when I first started yeah, thinking and reflecting on it. And I still remember there was this one night I was about to go visit a buddy at the pub. And beforehand, I was like finishing up dinner. I was washing the dishes. And I remember I was standing over my kitchen sink and I was just like sobbing. And I was like, God, I have tried over and over yeah. and over. And I have done everything that I possibly could. I went to Pastor Dane. I read my Bible every single day. I pray and I, I, I cannot tell you how many times I fasted throughout my time mm. at Liberty. Um, and it was always weird fasting. I always would always drink milk and Gatorade. <laughs> like that was what I would, anyway, no, no bearing on the story, but gross detail. Um, yeah. all this to say, I, I, I never, I was like, God, like I've done everything I possibly could do. Right. Like I, what, what more do you want from me? And when is the change that I've been promised ever mm-hmm. going to come? And it never came obviously. Um, and so I think that as time went on, I became growingly or increasingly resentful of the fact Mm -hmm. that I had done this and there was no change. And the fact that I was promised so much, at least at the time I thought what was, I I thought it was so much, i.e. being straight nowadays. I'm like, I don't want to be straight. Like, I don't want to be bored. Like, no, thank you. But you know, at the time I, I, I wanted that so badly, or I was told I wanted that so badly. And I, you know, um, as, as the years went on became to real, or I came to realize that it was an absolute sham. It was an absolute mm, yeah. uh, hoax. Like it's not possible. Um, and again, a lot of people have these realizations like much earlier mm, in life. And I yeah. probably should have had this realization much earlier mm, in life, yeah. but I didn't. And I, I guess in some ways, in a lot of ways, I'm a late bloomer and I, you know, should have thought about these things much earlier, but I didn't. And when I did finally realize it, I, 
I was ticked. I was, I was pissed. Yeah. To be honest, mm. you know, yeah. like I had spent so much time and energy on this and it was, uh, it was, a something that was never going to happen ever because it just doesn't happen. And mm. yet I was so invested in it. So I was ticked. Um, I was angry. I was hurt. And I yeah. still to this day am, am, am pissed about it. And I think that at this point, it's somewhat of a reasonable response. Mm. Yes. I'm just curious. What is your opinion um, of people who claim that they're ex-gay? <laughs> um, what, are they, what, what do they say? 99 people in the world uh, uh, can't become, if you're if 99 queers, there are 99, there, there are hundred queers. 99 of them uh, can't become straight. And the one person who can become straight is a liar. <laughs> oh, that's true. Love that. Um, no, it's, they're, they're, we can all, we can all lie to ourselves, right? It's quite yeah. easy to do. And uh, you have repression. And, oh, it's, it's just tomfoolery. Yeah, like this idea that they're straight. I've had people tell me that. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, mm-hmm, yeah. It's like when you see like a child and his dad, like a, a little boy in his dad's suit and his briefcase. And he's like in these oversized clothes. You're like, mm-hmm, isn't that cute? Like, <laughs> it's just it's just nonsense right um mm, these are the yeah. people who claim these things that they're straight um mm-hmm. or that they've had a, some sort of orientational change and yet these are the people who we're going to see in you know 10 15 years on grinder as faceless torsos you know on business oh, trips no. like that's just what happens um we can all say a lot of things and we can all lie to ourselves and to others mm. it doesn't mean that it, it's true right like it's, yeah. it's still mm-hmm. um even yeah. if you somehow believe it um, I think that, I think people who, who make these claims, uh, they're oftentimes used in, in evangelical churches or evangelical spaces, yeah. institutions as the, as the token person who, yeah. uh, who changed. But of course, even to be a token, you have to have some sort of authenticity and there's no authenticity here. Mm. Um, and here, I think that, uh, they are folks who have found some sort of identity as an ex-gay yeah. Again, regardless of the fact that it's it's illusory, it's 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 an illusion. It's not real, um, and that's what gives them some sort of like space or real estate within evangelicalism. Mm. And without that claim, without that fake identity, they wouldn't have a space within evangelicalism because they'd be kicked out. They wouldn't be allowed to stay in their church because they're queer, and so they hold fast to that lie because it gives mm. them the ability to remain within the evangelical fold. So of course you have to question like do you want to be in a community that won't reject you on a basic level and mm. on like the level of just who you are um for me i say no whereas for these folks um i think that they uh they they've been convinced that that's the only place that they can ever operate or exist yeah. mm, yes and it was interesting because when i was at bob jones university and i was in counseling uh, my counselor, he, I can't remember the name of the book, but I, I, I ripped it to shreds and threw it away. But <laughs> it was a book about this guy who claimed to change his sexual orientation. And when I got to the end of the book, the guy's like, oh yeah, I still have same sex attraction, but I have a wife and kids. <laughs> but I'm like, you're not changed at all. I'm like, this is such bullshit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like you've been able to stick your dick in the vagina and come. Okay. But you still have same sex attractions or you're still queer. So you're not mm-hmm. really changed. You're just repressing it. And like, sadly, these people would come to Bob Jones and speak in certain conferences they would have every once in a while, like sexuality and like some of the pseudoscience that they would teach about sexuality, which is, Oh my God, it was just terrible. Again, how you were talking about earlier about the, um, that's just black and white view of, oh, it's the parents, this situation, this formula, it's always, and if it's not, then they have to try to kind of, I don't know, twist it or explain it away. Um, it's just really weird. Um, and so really once you got out of the program and you were pissed about it and you were like, oh my gosh, this is bullshit. So how did that affect your choices and your career choice from then on? Well, I, so my academic focus for a very long time, and it's been what I've written all of my, both of my master's theses, as well as my doctoral dissertation, I've written on uh, topics related to the Holocaust. But the entire time I was in grad school, well, the entire time, starting at when I was at Vanderbilt into uh, my PhD, I, it was, I started also thinking about and writing about uh, evangelicalism and, and Christianity and as it relates to, to sexuality. Yeah. And so I started developing a secondary research interest, which 
was, you know, maybe the best way to put it is like critical evangelicalism studies. Cause every yeah. time I said that I study, I'm like, I study evangelicalism. People think I'm an evangelical and I'm like, Oh my word. No. So I define a term and the best yeah. term I've found so far is critical evangelicalism studies. Uh, and so I started developing the secondary interest um, I, in, in an academic sense, because of course I was interested in it before personally, but not as much uh, academically. So um, I was able to, so I, because of this, uh, this interest that I was developing and because of these papers I was writing, and then ultimately these papers, some of them turned into articles or book chapters, that kind of stuff. Um, actually there were just book chapters. I haven't written any articles. It's only been book chapters, uh, on this. Well, you know what? They've been on, it doesn't matter. I'm getting into the weeds and I don't need to, <laughs> I digress. Uh, so I started writing about this, um, because of that, um, I, I uh, was able to um, reposition myself academically as not just someone who studies the Holocaust, but someone who studies this as well, which ultimately allowed me and in, in, in really landed me my my current position at University of Calgary. Um, what I found is that a lot of people have not been interested in Jewish studies uh, in when it comes to post when I was applying for postdocs mm -hmm. um, and postdocs are just what you do post doctorate, what you do after you, you do, uh, you graduate. Um, and so a lot of folks just like were turning me down for whenever I, I submitted an application with a, with a Jewish studies focus. Mm -hmm. But when I started doing my, when I started uh, presenting uh, or how do I say framing myself in more as a religious studies scholar uh, who studies evangelicalism, more people were interested. And so mm. I um, started writing more and more about it. Um, even while I was doing my dissertation, finishing my dissertation, I, I you know, I've uh, been writing and speaking about that. And I think that's what ultimately landed me my, my new position. So um, I think it's, it's funny that what really in a lot of ways uh, was almost going to ruin my life, i.e. conversion therapy, i.e. evangelicalism, mm, yeah. has become my my main sort of like focus within my vocation. And so mm. um, I think that what's cool about some scholarship that's, that's emerging uh, more and more is that there is in some sense, there is in some ways uh, a, a record or an appreciation of autobiographical or autoethnography or like so auto analysis, like studying yourself and like presenting mm. yourself as part of your uh, what you're researching. And so with that being said, I plan to, to write about Liberty for this, for this postdoc. So for this, mm. uh, for the next two years, I'll be writing and researching, um, uh, about, about Liberty specifically. Mm, wow. Yeah. That's so, so, um, awesome and amazing how yeah, you're using your story and your experiences to bring light to those practices. And with this writing, what, what do you hope is going to accomplish, uh, exposing Liberty basically? Yeah, I don't think liberty is going to change, mm -hmm. to be honest. I mean, even right now with their interim president, Jerry Prevo, uh, this homophobic pastor from mm. uh, Alaska has done a lot uh, to damage the queer community up in Alaska. Mm. Um, he, uh, like, you know, do I think that my me writing this book is going to change him or going to change 99% of the people at Liberty? No, I think mm -hmm. that they're not either, they're either not gonna read it or if they do read it, they're gonna laugh and disparage mm -hmm. it because they it doesn't fit within their worldview. And so if it doesn't fit within their worldview, then if it, according to them, it's not, you know, uh, they don't have to worry about it. Mm. Um, but what I hope to do is, is by writing about Liberty, it's going to be at least the way I'm thinking about this project, it's going to be offering a window into what, into, to, uh, evangelical homophobia and religious mm. homophobia more yeah. broadly, and also just American homophobia, like so much of what yeah. homophobia in the U S is undergirded by and catalyzed by the church, right? Like the church has done a lot of damage and so much of what is reinforced yeah. within the U.S. specifically has been uh, uh, the church. Mm -hmm. So I hope that I'm, we're going to sh shed some light there. Um, I also hope that the people who are, uh, who I'll be interviewing, oops, pardon me. Uh, it's all good. My, <laughs> I, what, so much of what, um, oh, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> what was I saying? Uh, you were talking oh. about how. Yep. So, mm -hmm. The secondly, what this project, uh, what I hope this project accomplishes is that it gives the people who were affected 
by liberty and those who survived liberty mm. the chance to give voice to their yeah. experiences and actually narrate those experiences themselves because so much so, so liberty and again the wider evangelical culture so much of of evangelicalism and evangelicals so many of the evangelicals have tried to erase queer identity or queer expression yeah. or any sort of mm. any queer subjectivity within the church yeah and so in response to that attempted erasure I'm hoping that this project is going to intervene and, and, and give again, them the opportunity yeah. to speak uh, and to have the proverbial final word, right. That they're mm. not um, that Liberty didn't win. Liberty isn't yeah. the, you know, didn't erase or get rid of their queerness. Instead, they're still here uh, mm. and they have a voice and I can't wait to offer the platform to them to, to express their voices. Mm. Oh yes. I'd love that so much. And like, I hope too that, people who might be considering going to their program can read it and hopefully it can stop them from going into that because um, there is a lot of coercion and a lot of pressure to change your sexuality in those environments. Um, and I guess for you, how how was your mental health after leaving that situation and what changes in your life and like your thinking and behavior that you had to do to regain your mental health? How's my mental health? Just terrible. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I think it's okay. Um, no, I, I mean, I, I think I'm fine in a lot of ways mm-hmm. today. Uh, that doesn't mean that there weren't years of having to, to work oh, yeah. through all of this, right? Yeah. Um, for me, like, I think what I see as a saving grace to use the best Christianese I can, <laughs> it would be my family. Like I had, other than my mom, my mom's mm. uh, a really... Um, angry homophobe uh, oh, whereas yeah. the rest of my family my my dad passed away but my siblings are all super super uh wonderful and my dad was wonderful as well um and i think because of the foundation that i have with my family yeah. specifically um my dad and my my siblings um and my, my extended family beyond that i think mm-hmm. because of that i am i was well positioned to sort of work through this right. That I had a good foundation mm-hmm. and it's not like I was coming from a, a super religious or a super evangelical home life. Yeah. So I think that, that was super helpful. I also think that therapy is helpful. Like therapy was yeah. when mm-hmm. I went to therapy. Yes. Um, and I also real therapy. That, yeah. <laughs> yay, yay therapy. We're in full support. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think for me though, also academia really offered me the, chance to think through and to feel through a lot of what Um, happened mm. Um, that it allowed me the space and the time to contemplate and to work through and to theorize and to offer a narrative really around my experience that Mm. I probably wouldn't have, I wouldn't have that narrative had it not been for, for academia. I wouldn't have the theoretical or the sort of like the, 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 the toolkit to work through this had it not been for really like what I was reading and with the people with whom I was speaking. Um, so I'm very grateful for academia. I would say academia saved my life, to be honest. Mm. Like it, it's something that allowed me the keys or the tools to, to work out my faith and to work myself out of it, right. To actually get mm-hmm. out of it um, yeah. because of, and realizing how damaging evangelicalism really is. Um, my, my academics and my, my studies and my research have, have, have shown me that, um, mm. in addition to my, uh, you know, contemplating or thinking through my own experiences, I think both of those in tandem, mm-hmm. uh, worked or allowed me to, uh, to find some, some semblance of mental health. Um, so I'd say those are the ways that I was able to sort of work myself mm. out of or, or work myself away from evangelicalism and conversion therapy. Mm. Yeah. I mean, writing is definitely so powerful and it's something that has been great for me. Um, and, you know, it's proven by science, just writing to just writing about your trauma or exploring it through writing. And it doesn't have to be pretty brain on this thing. You could just journal and that can really help so much with dealing with those experiences. And I'm just really curious too, about your deconstruction journey. So how did that, um, unfold for you? So I, it wasn't even my sexuality that really Mm -hmm. pushed me from the church or pushed me from my faith. Certainly there were parts of my sexuality that, that helped me, you know, revision or re re understand or reconceptualize, 
uh, parts of my faith, but it was actually my study of the Holocaust that ultimately um, forced me to give up my faith. Mm. And I don't see that as a bad thing. I see that again, as a very good thing, like yes, yeah. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. me giving up my faith uh, because I, again, there was so much damage done to me and also to a lot mm. of other people that I just yeah. think to myself, why in the world is, would, would someone want to continue in this? But for me, studying the Holocaust was something that pushed me again to, to, to give up my faith. And I think it actually, it was actually one day I was sitting there and so I, I, had, I saw someone, you know, some, some gal had written that she was blessed because God gave her a, a free coffee. It was like, I think it was like a free Starbucks coffee or something like that. And she said like, Oh, like God blessed me today with this coffee. And I was sitting there and I was like, wait a second. And again, maybe I'm a late bloomer. Maybe all these things I should have thought about way earlier. But I was sitting there. I was, it was on my couch in Florida when I lived in Florida. And I remember being like, wait a second, how in the world does this person think that God blessed her? I was like blessings, according to, again, the evangelical imagination, emphasis on imagination, blessings are, are active gifts that God gives, right? God actively gives a mm-hmm. gift of whatever that gift is to, to certain people. Um, and that would then, therefore, um, the, one would have to believe then that if, in fact, God actively gives gifts to some, God is actively not giving gifts to others, yeah. right? And not just not giving good gifts to others, but also not giving anything. And that also, yeah. all the, all on top of that, that there's a lot of you know crappy things happening to them. And by crappy, I mean to say like really horrible things that are going on. Yeah. I, like we think about the Holocaust, we think about, um, you know, a lot of mental health issues and homelessness. Mm, uh, yeah. We can think about, you know, different issues going on. Like right now, think about Ukraine. We can think about like all these yeah. different um, human rights crises happening. And if in fact God is giving this one gal this free Starbucks coffee, but not intervening yeah. over here yeah. in a human rights crisis, that sounds to me like a really crappy God, a really, you know, yeah. bad God even. Mm. And so I thought to myself, okay, so if I believe that God gives gifts, then that means that I also believe that God doesn't give gifts and therefore mm. God is bad. And I was like, okay, I don't know if I can get on board with believing in a bad God. So then I might just believe that God is there, but God doesn't do anything. God doesn't act. God mm. doesn't give gifts or, you know, whatever that ultimately God just sits back. And that also could be understood as like God being like, you know, bad by, by omission in the sense that God's not, you know, doing anything to intervene, mm-hmm. but maybe there's some sort of, anyway, all this to say that I started thinking through like, is God good? Is God bad? God get, does God act? Does God not act? And I concluded that I just don't think that there is a God who acts again, mm-hmm. the fiction. And I, and I, it is a fiction because I made it up <laughs> that I'm okay to believe in, right? Like I don't, I'm not saying mm-hmm. anyone else should believe in it. I don't think that anyone necessarily has to believe in it. But I do believe in God. I don't know who that God is, to be honest. I have like yeah. zero idea. Um, mm-hmm. I think there is some sort of creator. Who that creator is, again, no mm-hmm. clue. But I don't think that God acts. I don't think that we can believe that God acts if, in fact, mm-hmm. we believe in a good God. Um, and again, I want to believe in a good God. I want so badly to believe in a good God. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not that's true, I don't know. But yeah. that, that, in fact, there is a good God out there. But like, what I can say is that I can't believe in a God that acts and also live in a world, live in this, the world that we're living in. So mm. it was actually, again, it was studying the Holocaust and thinking about like, again, this woman says like hashtag, like too blessed to be stressed or blessed, whatever. And then thinking about the Holocaust in re- reference or in relationship to that, I was like, what the heck? This just can't, it's not intellectually honest to believe yeah. in a good God who acts. Therefore I don't believe in a good God who acts. Mm. Mm, yes, most definitely. Because even you know, going back to the Starbucks example, I just when I would see examples like that, like my mom, she would be like, "Oh, thank you, Lord, for giving me a parking spot <laughs> at the grocery store." And <laughs> like, who the fuck do you think you are that God will give you a goddamn <laughs> parking spot? But this child starving over here in Africa because they were born in the wrong religion or no religion or wrong environment, they get to suffer. Um, but of course, that kind of thinking comes from a place of privilege, <laughs> I think. And, you know, they're not thinking about other people. And if they do, they're like, oh, well, I believe the right things or, oh, like God is pleased with me 
or something. And it's just, it's been interesting to walk away and leave it and like hear all the different people who think they're right. Like I've been, people who are Mormon have tried to convert me. People who are Jehovah's Witness have tried to convert me. And it's just so interesting and funny to see all their different arguing points. Well, it's <laughs> and like, how they're all the same. They are. And then when you say something along the lines of like, how do you reconcile mm. a good God with like you're saying like a starving kid here or yeah. a cancer patient here and then the answer is oftentimes well god's ways are higher it's like what a cop out like what in yeah. the world yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's like that i think makes sense i think they're it, called it um, substantial they're like called like um thought terminating cliches it's just phrases or cliches to just shut down critical thinking and not to deal with the cognitive dissonance really and yeah i i'm get so sick of hearing that i heard that all the time growing up god's ways are higher than our ways are uh we'll never know until we die just trust don't question mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and it does shut down that critical thinking a lot and it lives it makes people live in an ignorant bliss really i guess you would say um and so for you what are your obviously you know you're working on this book but what are what are your plans for the future as you continue throughout your career and your life yeah i plan to well i'd love to work in academia for the rest of my life though at the same Mm -hmm. time i just realize more and more how much of a pipe dream that is just because so few people actually get the opportunity to work in academia. Yeah. Um, and I know that my chances are are not good given the fact that the market is so saturated with so many PhDs who are well, 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 mm. well qualified. And I am well, well, well qualified too, but it doesn't mean mm. that I'm going to get it. I'm yeah. going to get these positions or a position. Um, and there's a lot of luck and chance involved in that. So for me, I would love to work in some sort of queer advocacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would love to, I would love to stay in research, to be honest. I love research. Um, I would love to stay in writing if that was an opportunity, yeah. if I could, you know, in fact, uh, support myself by writing. Um, I have also thought about going back to school again <laughs> um, <laughs> to do a creative writing degree because I love to to write creatively and I would love to write about yeah. Um, my experience specifically at Liberty, to be honest, but also more broadly about my experiences in evangelical and high school Mm. and all that. Um, So those are really, it's research or writing in some Mm -hmm. way, shape or form. That's what I want to do. And, you know, for me, I think part of what I, I take great joy in is exposing the evangelical church. Mm, um, and I think it's funny because like evangelicals will oftentimes claim like they're being attacked and they're like, they're out, the world's out to get us and they're the victims, right? The martyrdom complex. And it's like in 90% and in so many ways, I'm like, no, you're not like the world doesn't like, we're not out to get you. However, in other senses, I'm like, you know what? Kind of the world is because if in fact evangelicals mm. weren't so holier than thou they didn't they weren't such hypocrites i think is really Mm. if they weren't such hypocrites and also if they weren't so like incredibly like um uh abusive and uh traumatizing to so many people um but if if they weren't such hypocrites the world wouldn't take joy in exposing them Mm. right like if only they acted well if they acted decently we wouldn't care about them we'd be like actually keep it up do more like amazing um but because they're such hypocrites (laughs) I think that the world yeah. loves to to expose them. And, and, and it's not just evangelicals, any hypocrite in the world. People yeah. love to be like, yo, look how hypocritical this person is or this group is, whatever. Um, and so, yeah, the world is excited to, to expose them, mm-hmm. especially those who have been affected by them. And especially by those who were one or, you know, were one of them yeah. um, or, or some of them. So uh, for me, I want to write about evangelicalism. I want to write about my own experience mm-hmm. um, and or uh, do work that that furthers the the rights and the freedoms of of, of queer people here in Canada and abroad. Mm, yes, that's so great. And like, it's just interesting because I think anytime you try to hold an evangelical accountable, that's just attack anyways. <laughs> and it's so annoying. <laughs> no, you cannot hold me accountable for anything. You're attacking me. <laughs> it just makes you think of a Karen that yeah. like in one of those viral videos <laughs> that no, exactly one, what it is. no one's hurting them. It's like, stop, he's hitting me. Like nothing's happening. Yeah, oh, it's exactly it. Exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, I've enjoyed this conversation um, so much. And before we get close to the end, what advice do you have 
for people who are stuck in these toxic evangelical environments and are struggling with that conflict of their sexuality and their religious identity? I think I, the, something I wish I knew before, something I wish I knew before leaving the church that would have been so helpful was that there is community outside of the church. Mm, yes. So many people are so um, mm. stuck within the church because they think that, well, if I leave, I lose my family, I lose my friends, mm. I lose my community, I lose all these things. And it's like, maybe you will. Right. And, and yeah. some of those things I lost, some of those things you lost, right. Some of those things, yeah. other Ooh, queer Christians yeah. or queers who were in the Christian mm. spaces lost, but the beautiful thing, the beautiful realization was that a, well, actually a lot of my friends and family didn't give two hoots about me being queer. In fact, they already yeah. knew. Um, my, they're like, no shit. <laughs> yeah. They're like, nah. And next, what, what's your other, what's your other question? Um, and then on top of that, that there is, there is, there are so many communities out there. There are so many people out yeah, there who are, are so well and who do embrace you for who you are, as opposed to evangelicals who have a very mm -hmm. conditional understanding of what it means to embrace someone simply mm -hmm. for who they are. Um, that they really, they don't, pardon me, I shouldn't even say, it's not conditional for who they are. They have conditions on acceptance. They'll only accept you if you yeah. are XYZ um, mm -hmm. or for America Z. But yeah. all this to say that, there's so there's there's actually a much more exciting world out there there's a much more mm -hmm. um loving and accepting world out there and there's a much more like life-giving world out there so much of what was within evangelicalism and the world that evangelicals create for themselves mm -hmm. is just honestly bonkers like looking back I, I i just wish i knew how crazy a lot of the things that i thought were truth or that were true mm. I, I wish i knew how crazy they were because why because they're they were and are crazy like these like the what is acceptable what is not acceptable what is sin what is not sin it's so funny mm. what you you take as good or you believe to be good that is actually not good and how much of what you believe to be bad is actually not bad yeah. Um, so this upside down topsy turvy world of evangelicalism there's so much more out there and it's so much better, <laughs> mm, so much better. yes like i definitely i agree so much i mean it it is when you grow up in these very isolated environments i mean they're made to make it hard to leave you know it's your community sometimes it's even your school your friends are there your um your family is there and you have all your connections in it and so it can be hard to get out but you know taking the time to slowly research into your community and find different groups or people you can fit in with and make those connections with the outside world because there is such a strong rhetoric of like oh stay away from the outside world just you know stay in the fold like socialize with christians only and it's like that keeps you stuck and trapped number one in your own thinking and like you know, I think it causes so much growth in a person to be exposed to different people and diverse worldviews because it actually causes you to question your own worldview and develop critical thinking skills and learn empathy and understanding and like actually like getting along with other people, <laughs> which we need so much as society. But um, and, you know, and I, I sometimes think back, I'm like, you know, about maybe certain things that might have stopped me from going out and it's just the fear like there's so much fear around stepping outside the fold they purposely indoctrinate you to be scared of leaving and you know you have to learn to slowly um overcome that and i think too because you're just so beaten down um psychologically and spiritually um you you take less than what you really deserve because you don't have much self-worth really in those kinds of environments because uh, they devalue you a lot so you just kind of like oh like i should be grateful for what i have i'm a worthless sinner but when you actually like start to claim autonomy and know who you are um, you're like no like i deserve so much better so much better than this <laughs> And I think that can, you know, sadly, some people, it can take a long time to get to that point or not. Um, but for me, like Facebook groups <laughs> have been incredible <laughs> for finding that community. Even in the local town that I live in, I've 
become a part of a decon local deconstruction group <laughs> and we meet like every week and just talk about our lives or what's going on and you know we relate on that level of you know we left high control religion and we're transitioning um to a more secular life and we have that support for one another so you know even if you discover people online that is a great way to find local groups um in your community but thank you again so much, Lucas, for coming on the show. And is there anything else you would like to say before we end this interview? I don't know. I think that that kind of sums it up. Okay, I, awesome. I think you're right that yeah, there is there's a lot there are a lot of online communities that can be mm. helpful. Even just like yeah. Twitter accounts. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Chrissy Stroop's Twitter or Christian oh, Nightmare's yes. Twitter. Like these are mm. people. Uh, who who have done a lot of this work and are just phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Riley Onishi from Straight White Jesus, like oh, yeah. do really, really great work. And I think these are people who like Kevin Garcia, uh, you need to follow. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Well, thank you again so much for coming on the show. And thank you to everyone listening. And this was Speaking Up with Andrew Pledger. Thank you for listening to Speaking Up with Andrew Pledger. Your support is much appreciated. Please leave a review and share with friends and family. And if you can, please support me on Patreon. And the link is in my description. Thank you so much for listening to Speaking Up with Andrew Pledger.